JV Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 89 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about AI-powered business process intelligence with Jay Barteau from Zeitworks. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JV Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Before we get started with our interview, don't forget that you can subscribe to the InsureTech Geek Podcast by texting GEEKOUT to 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. Now to our special guest, Jay Barteau from Zeitworks. Jay, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? Man, I cannot complain. Glad to have you on the show. Rob Galbraith, how's it going? It's going, James. It's going. It is uh, almost summertime. It's my daughter's last week of school this week as we're recording, so... Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. As we record this, it's Tuesday, May 23rd, 2022. Uh, my kids are in their, their last week of school as well. It is uh, summertime in beautiful Texas, and it's been blazing hot. It's been like 98 degrees every day. We finally got a cold front came through. It feels a little bit more like May. Uh, Jay, where are you at? I am in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. Um, ah. And I tell you, it's been very cold and rainy here all spring. Well, um, we had a couple of nice days over the weekend, so we're super happy for that. Yeah, it's it's been literally just nasty hot here. So enjoy enjoy your weather that you got up there, and uh, we're, we're we're glad, of course, it's usually a little cooler up there in the Pacific Northwest. Jay, we're we're glad to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. You um, you know, you've got you've got experience across a, a broad variety of uh, different different companies and across the industry of uh, software development, mm-hmm. whether it was for, uh, um, well, geez, you, 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 you actually spread it around uh, for a while. We're going to talk about all these, including, including stops at uh, Hulu, Microsoft. Uh, you, you really had uh, quite the, the array of companies that you have been, uh, been able to work at since uh, 93. But I, I, I like to talk about you. Let's talk about your background just a little bit. Um, where were you born and raised? Where'd you go to grade school, mm-hmm. high school? Um, what'd you dream of doing when you were a kid? Yeah, so um, I so I was born uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut, in New England, um, and was there in Connecticut until I was about nine or ten. And then my family moved to Chicago, um, inner city Chicago. My uh, my my parents uh, went to work for the University of Chicago, and uh, grew up there. Um, the rest of my growing up there. Um, went to school, a few different colleges, um, but ultimately, uh, you know, ended up at the University of Iowa. And then, um, you know, this was the early 90s, early to mid 90s, and the whole grunge thing was happening out in Seattle. And so all the Midwest kids were, were moving out to, um, uh, out to the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, and so me and some friends, uh, you know, packed up our stuff and moved on out. Now, what, what made you, <laughs> this is, this is a great combo because, I, I'm obsessed with music as well. I play piano, guitar, sing. Yeah. Um, grew up in that in South Louisiana. Uh, was obsessed with grunge music in the 90s as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what made you triple major music, anthropology, and computer science at University of Iowa? Yeah. So I um, was, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional musician. Um, I yeah, played drums, I played guitar. 
um, was really obsessed with music. And so my first stop at college, my freshman year, was at Berklee College of Music in Boston. And yeah. uh, what I learned there, a very valuable life lesson, is being a professional musician is a hard living. Um, and after a year of doing that and kind of realizing what my competition was like and just kind of how hard it was to, to make a living and make a buck, uh, I went back to Chicago and uh, kind of regrouped. Um, you know, there's a social scientist in me somewhere from my mother in particular, um, you know, who is a PhD in sociology and, and uh, you know, studied and taught at University of Chicago. So I started thinking about some kind of new things there in social science and anthropology. But the music stayed with me and I couldn't get away from uh, wanting to play, wanting to record and wanting to compose and so uh, when I got to the University of Iowa, I met a friend who said um, I was doing uh, music production on kind of cheap uh, four track recorders and uh, the quality was pretty poor. And he had this personal computer. He had this uh, early Macintosh computer that he was doing uh, MIDI um, uh, music development on. And he said, you know, if you go down to the computer center here at school, they'll lend you the money to buy a computer. And I was like, Someone's going to lend me money? Are you kidding me? And so I went down uh, and chose, picked out a, a Macintosh. This was the late 80s um, and brought it back to my room and um, started doing music production on it um, and got obsessed with it. It was the ultimate instrument. I could draw on it. I could play music on it. Um, you know, I could do my homework on it. I mean, you you name it. I was really obsessed with it. And you know, gosh, I wasn't a math kid in high school, but I had some some math, you know, kind of geeky friends um, who had Commodore 64s and some of these earlier uh, systems. And um, somehow I crossed some kind of bridge and got interested in programming and um, started to teach myself now, how to program. Now, which which Mac was this the the Macintosh Plus or was this yes. like? It was a it was a Macintosh yeah. SE, which was the model that came right after the Plus. That was right after the yeah. Plus, yeah. It had two two floppy drives right. instead of yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. yeah. nice. Okay. So so you 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 like me because I was like obsessed with piano mm -hmm. and thought I was going to be a professional piano player, and then I found out how much money they made, and I yeah. was like, eh. And uh, then it got hooked on coding, and I was like, you know, a lot of musicians yeah. are coders because it's uh, music's coding. I mean, right? Totally. Like music, music, I would argue, is the world's first universal programming language mm -hmm. because you could plug the same code into every computer, the computer being the piano or the guitar, and you'd get the same result yeah. or roughly the same result. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it just makes so much sense once you, uh, once you get into it, right? Absolutely. And the, and the ability with the newer software tools to edit what you've, what you've composed um, at a fine grain level I got a bad note in that recording, so I'm going to go into my screen and editor and just kind of move that note right over to where um, it's not a wrong note anymore. Super powerful. And, and again, I got just really obsessed with the whole thing. Awesome. So you've, you've spent, and I'm going to fast forward because I want to jump in and talk about insurance and insure yeah. tech. And uh, we could talk for an hour on your resume, but you, you've had a lot of different roles at a lot of different companies. Um, one of them was uh, acquired. You were CTO and co-founder of Voto, which was was acquired by Hulu. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I've been a longtime Hulu customer. So, you, you know, you but you started in software. Just, it's always been in software, technology, technology development, CTO, managing director. Now you've been board member and advisor. 
Um, tell me what the what was the path there? Like, were you just always really interested in writing code, and it didn't matter which industry? You know, it was it wasn't just code, um, and it didn't matter what industry. I got interested in two things in the late '90s: startups and machine learning and AI. Um, and uh, I got introduced to those things through some faculty at University of Washington I was working with um, on one of their startups. Uh, some faculty was uh, doing some spinouts. Um, of their research into the private sector um, and got really interested in pattern recognition and data and all these things I probably would have laughed at myself at uh, 10 years earlier being interested in this kind of stuff. Um, but once I was on that startup path and that machine learning path, I ended up you know, going through a number of different verticals like e-commerce and online advertising, travel, um, medical informatics, um, consumer shot video, all of those things have interesting data and machine learning problems associated with it. So my, my thing is like creating these vertical machine learning products um, that take in some kind of interesting proprietary source of data, pull some signals out of it and, and pass the value on to the customer. Awesome. And uh, let's, let's fast forward then. Is Zeitworks your first foray into insurance technology? Uh, almost. So um, after uh, I sold my last startup to Hulu um, and, and worked at Hulu for a bit, um, I took an interesting job um, that kind of was reflected my background to some degree. I took a job as CTO and managing director at a startup studio. Um, basically, a little, we were a small group of people in Seattle who our job was to come up with new, interesting, venture-backable technology startup ideas. And so we looked quite a bit at the insurance space, you know, looking for new opportunities, new products that were needed, new technology that was needed, and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the first time I started to learn a bit about uh, insurance and insure tech. Um, that was also the place where, um, looking at the RPA space, um, you know, we came up with the idea for Zeitworks. You, you had the opportunity with Zeitworks to take these set of tools that you described uh, to me as upstream of mm -hmm. RPA um, and apply them to any industry. So why did you pick fintech and insurtech to be the, the first foray with Zeitworks? Yeah, so, um, you know, the interesting thing, the nice thing about Zeitworks is that our total addressable market is massive, right? I mean, repetitive business processes um, executed by teams of people are found in so many industries, uh, financial services, insurance, healthcare, manufacturing, I mean, you name it. Um, so that's, that's good from a total addressable market space. As a young little startup, we have to focus. We don't want to boil the ocean. Um, and so financial services and insurance were particularly interesting to us. We chose fintech and insurtech on the bet that um, because we're a little startup, we got to move pretty quickly. And so when we engage customers, ideally, you know, it's a few months of um, you know, getting in there, um, showing our value proposition and, and getting them onboarded as customers. Whereas a lot of the other industries I mentioned, uh, you know, the sales cycle can be really long um, and long sales cycles kill startups. And so, you know, that's kind of why we've been focused on, um, you know, the, the insure techs and fintechs. Um, you know, in order to hopefully move a little quicker, also be working with folks that maybe might be a little bit uh, more versed in the value of data 
and how to work with data, um, you know, to, to optimize uh, their businesses and, you know, make more analytical decisions about how to run their businesses and make them more efficient. Awesome. So in a, in a short, sweet, simple nutshell, uh, what does ZeitWorks actually do and how is it different than RPA? So what we discovered um, from looking at RPA was before you can implement an RPA bot, you have to know what your process is. Um, you have to understand it. You have to know what the steps are in the process. Um, is the process ready for RPA? Does it need to be re-engineered? Um, does it need to be optimized? Um, and what we found was that although there was a big RPA boom happening at the time we started looking at the space in 2019, when we talked with a, with a lot of customers in the spaces I mentioned, what we heard was, I've heard about RPA, I've heard about it from my colleagues, I've heard about it at the conferences. We're not ready for RPA. We got to help, we got to figure out what's happening uh, in our own group of people. I'm not sure what my people do. I'm not sure what processes they follow. I'm not sure what steps they follow. I'm not sure who's a good worker and a not so good worker. I'm not sure who needs help, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wanted to, uh, we realized we needed to meet organizations where they are versus where they want to be, um, you know, at some point in the future. And that means, you know, shining a light um, on, on uh, their organizations and their processes um, and, you know, helping them see what, what's going on so they can fix it and make it better. I'm really uh, interested in this, Jay, um, because I, you know, I've worked with RPA both at uh, a couple of different carriers that I've, I've worked for in the past. And, um, you know, the promise is great. And to your point, we've got tons of uh, workflows, some of which are automated, many of which are not, right, manual processes. And I think the pandemic has shed a light on a lot of the, the manual parts um, for, for insurance companies. I also know I've worked with people that are RPA developers and, um, it, you never seem like you get the ROI that you would think you would. And, and there's many different mm -hmm. reasons for that. Um, but you know, oftentimes maybe, you know, you've got to get information from an external website or database and you go out and you're scraping, you're having automated login and you're going here and there and getting the information. And then all of a sudden they change their system. Right. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. now you got to go back to your, your RPA breaks and now you got to go, you know, and it feels like we were constantly kind of re engineering the RPA. And then, you know, you mentioned something I described as the gate agent problem, right? Which is if you've better to the, the airport and you talk to a gate agent and you see them fly through their green screens and you're like, mm -hmm. how can they still use that? And it's like, well, to them, they've been using it for decades and they yeah. know the system backwards and forwards. So asking them, like, how can you improve upon this process? They're going to think about that system, right? And they may be like, well, I have to enter this information three different places. It'd be nice if it was one, but they won't think big enough, right? Um, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's always about kind of the adjacent possible. I know there's firms like uh, UiPath that do process mining and others. You've talked about ZeitWorks being a process fitness tracker. So tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about how that works, where you're able to actually uncover what people do without them having to sit down and, and kind of interview them for hours about what they do. Yeah. No, ab absolutely. And that, that was really the sort of initial problem we saw when we heard from management consulting firms in particular who work with RPA vendors that um, in order, as a, as a pre-step to RPA, they would need to sit down with their clients and do this manual process discovery and run these workshops where they would bring in gaggles of fresh college grads and have these kids stand over the shoulders of the workers um, you know, doing the repetitive business processes and writing everything down manually. 
Um, and that was that was time consuming. It was expensive. And it at the end of that exercise really only revealed a single point in time analysis. You know, processes are always changing. People are always changing. And so we knew we needed uh, a system that could uh, a sensor, if you will, um, in our case, a software sensor, but conceptually certainly similar to a hardware sensor that, you know, you guys are starting to see in the insurance uh, business, um, you know, people putting sensors in their homes and so forth and trying to uh, notice and predict water damage and other things that can happen. In our case, we wanted to build a software sensor that would sit on the desktop machines um, of the information workers and, and passively monitor all of the interactions that they have with the user interface um, that made up their, their business process. So what applications did they interact with? In what order? How long would they spend in those applications? Uh, what would they do in those applications? Um, and, and by being able to gather that data, um, you know, suddenly you, know, you can start to see things that you may never have thought of before. Um, we've had customers who have said, you know, some of this stuff, um, you're validating my hunches that I've had for years. We've had uh, those same customers have also said to us, hey, you know, I had no idea this was going on. I didn't know people were doing this or not doing this. And so, you know, one of our, one of our mottos is you can't fix what you can't see. Um, and so with data, um, you know, suddenly, uh, and some analysis on top of that data, suddenly you can see what's going on. In a very similar way to all of us who are, you know, uh, with our Apple Watches and our Fitbits and all this, uh, you know, other sensor software we're starting to wear, suddenly you've got the data. Um, how many steps did I take today? How much weight did I lose? And once, once you have real data, I think we all know that you can make a lot better uh, strategic decisions about where you want to go. Let's, uh, let's try to understand the technical mm -hmm. aspect of how this works. You install a desktop mm -hmm. agent on the worker's desktop that then logs all activity and what they're doing on each application so you can build real-time process documentation of how each worker does each major That's process correct. flow? That's right. And then does it reflect itself in some kind of graphical map that it produces saying, hey, they spend this yep. much time over here and this much time over here, and then they're exporting from here and then yes. uploading to we here? We have a, uh, an analytics portal where uh, right now managers can log on and look at their processes, um, look at the behavior of their teams, um, you know, look at how application usage in particular um, is being utilized across different parts of their processes, see all of this data uh, analytically, um, and, and where necessary, not only see the data analytically in charts and graphs, but be able to drill into where they see strange things or anomalies um, or outliers, um, and be able to poke around and say, hmm, you know, this is interesting. Um, my processes on average tend to take an hour uh, to complete, but I see this distribution in this long tail of these other processes, you know, that take 12 hours. What's going on here? Um, you know, is there an issue with the information worker? Um, is there issues with the software? Do, do people need more training? Is this particular customer whose who's data we're processing, are they problematic? Um, you know, we have, uh, we have one customer who, um, when we started showing them uh, their data, you know, started to tell us about how um, their financial services uh, processing cust um, uh, customer, and they started to tell us about how they've got customers that they think are not good customers for them because 
they're not profitable. Their processes that they have to execute on behalf of those customers are too complex. Um, or, you know, uh, alternatively, they need to change their pricing scheme to, to represent the complexity um, of certain customers' processes. So that was really interesting to us because we knew that, you know, a lot of these processes are broken. We knew that a lot of these information workers may need better training. They may need um, better design processes, you know, these kinds of things. But we hadn't thought about the, the end customer of our customers and whether you know, those customers were necessarily good customers or bad customers. So you know, during our beta period, our pilot period, you know, we've learned about all kinds of new use cases um, you know, that, that our data uncovers that people hadn't thought of before. I gotta ask the obvious question. Are you big It's brother? a great question. Um, and it's a deep question. Um, you know, we, um, you know, are certainly sensitive to this topic of surveillance and, um, you know, one, one of the things that we think is really important is that if you're going to be measured by something or someone, then you should be able to get value out of that measurement yourself personally. And so, you know, from a go to market, uh, uh standpoint, we focused on selling into managers and then their bosses, which are typically CIOs or CROs or so forth. But we've realized that if the whole team can be involved uh, in the value of Zeitworks, uh, both, both getting value out of Zeitworks and contributing to the value of Zeitworks, then the whole system is gonna be better. So we really want uh, our customers to um, be transparent, um, that there's a sensor running, um, but also, give the information workers a login to our system where they can see their own metrics and they can see their own steps um, and use our tools to um, you know, figure out where they're having problems or debug their problems um, and, and be a part of that, that whole ecosystem. Um, so we feel pretty, pretty strongly about that and, and the, the first rev of features were for managers, but now we're starting to focus on uh, features for workers too. Yeah, I just wanted to, to go a little deeper on that particular topic, Jay, because I, I know, um, you know, I've managed teams of underwriters in the past that are, are handling individual accounts, right? And they mm -hmm. have essentially productivity stats and quality stats. So we want you to handle a certain number of files with a certain percent of accuracy. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we had processes where we could, you know, see their screen, we could listen to phone calls that they were having, et cetera, right? That was part of the, the quality audit and, and, and evaluation process. And, um, yeah, it just drove conversations, right? So you'd see somebody that maybe did a really good job with quality, but they struggled to make their productivity goals. And so you'd want to work with that person to be like, hey, I don't want you to sacrifice quality, but I do want to make sure that you're hitting, you know, the productivity number because that's going to help you in your career in advance. And you could see people that were super talented, but it's like, okay, but if you're not mastering your current role, then it, it's really hard to kind of, you know, have you advance in the, the organization or make that case. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of other people that are competing for those types of promotions. Um, um, so, yeah, I was just wondering, like, have you seen or heard any of these kind of um, conversations as, as managers and workers are talking and, and does it help maybe go beyond the, the tunnel vision of that gate agent problem that I saw where it's hard for them to think beyond their current processes or systems to a more holistic conversation and, and lead to better outcomes on, on both sides? Yeah, I mean, with our, I would say with our handful of pilot customers we've had so far, we haven't seen um, a lot of that detail about, for example, as you say, how would Zeitworks data be
be used in an exact conversation, um, you know, with an information worker, um, you know, to help them improve. Um, you know, I think we only sort of know by instinct and analogy that um, when a worker is armed with, with information, um, no matter what kind of worker they are, um, they're more in a position to advocate for themselves. Um, you know, one, one thing that we, we hear a lot about is, well, I do a really good job and at promotion time, you know, I have data to back up the fact that, you know, I do a certain amount of work that, you know, yields um, a percentage of the teamwork with that we need to accomplish in this quarter or those kinds of things. Um, so I think it can be some, it can be information that's used to help a worker that may be struggling. Um, and again, we don't have a lot of experience yet with those scenarios, but we're also hearing about scenarios where workers will tell us, you know, um, this, this is great because this is sort of proof that I do my job well. Um, so, so a lot more to be learned here, Rob. I think, you know, <laughs> for better or for worse, with a lot of the technology startups I've done, you know, we're kind of walking the cutting edge of, um, you know, data and information and how to use that information responsibly. Um, and productively versus it. We know there's possibilities for this information to not be used responsibly and productively. And so, um, you know, we're looking forward to working with our customers on these issues and, and, uh, and helping them, um, you know, articulate the value to, um, you know, their, their, their team as well as to, um, you know, up their, up their chain of management. Okay. So, Let's talk about how you said it's upstream yes. from from RPA. So let's talk about how far upstream, because it would seem to me like the next logical thing would be to automatically build an RPA bot from a process that you recorded, almost like recording an Excel macro. And I'm really sorry if I'm oversimplifying this, but um, it would seem to me like that might mm -hmm. be a, Absolutely. A, a next step, right? And you know, as we, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we we started out um, thinking that. Uh, what was really needed was a way to automate um, what's called, oftentimes called task discovery, um, so that you can understand, well, what are the steps I'm going to need to teach my bot um, uh, in order to do this process? Um, and then, as I mentioned, you know, we realized there was this sort of bigger problem of help me manage my team, help me understand, you know, where we are and how to optimize uh, things prior to RPA. But it's logical to think, okay, well, there'll be a time where Zeitworks helps uh, a team get their house in order and figure out their processes and understand uh, how well engineered they are and whether they're good candidates for RPA. And at that point, you know, we have all the data. Um, we can certainly output uh, a process map or a task map, if you will, um, you know, that would be in instructional either to automatically create an RPA bot or um, probably more likely instructions to give an RPA uh, engineer um, to go and implement, um, uh, yeah. you know, a, a bot. You know, yeah. one of the one of the metrics we compute is a complexity score on a process, and not all executions of one particular process um, are the same. So, someone may be processing uh, bank loans, and you know, James, maybe you know your your bank loan application is not so complicated, but Rob's is more complicated for whatever reason. Um, and so it's not a one size fits all when it comes to these processes and being able to to observe a whole distribution of process executions, say, in this case, you know, a, a bank loan um, process, 
you know, really tells a much greater story of how complicated do these things get? Um, and, you know, given that and where there's complications, um, you know, what is the most appropriate use of RPA technology? Um, and, um, you know, can we segment executions of this bank loan process um, or claims process in insurance, um, you know, in order to automate the ones we can automate, but also know that, um, you know, we've got real people with their hands on the wheel um, for the more complex ones. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's, there's a, of course, we've done a lot of RPA work. It's a, RPA is one potential outcome, but another potential outcome is just literally consulting with the worker and saying, Hey, we've got to, we've got to yeah. rethink and re-engineer this process. Right. Like, so, but part, part of the outcome, I'm just yeah. trying to get to like what you do with all this, right? Like you, you either build an RPA bot or you re-engineer yep. the process yep. with a process engineer. Right. I mean, what, what, yeah. are, what are all the, I, maybe I I'm, maybe I'm missing some outcomes. Deal. I think that, um, you know, with this uh, type of information worker, um, we know that um, attrition has always been a problem. Um, institutional amnesia is typical where, you know, the best the best person leaves. Um, they knew where all the bodies were buried in the nooks and crannies of the different applications and systems. Suddenly there's no documentation and the person who is second in command knows a lot less than the person who left. And so um, I think documentation uh, is a big area. Um, you know, we're also, you know, uh, we started ZiteWorks, of course, before the, the whole COVID thing um, and the surge in remote work. Um, we're also seeing uh, a lot of uh, people ask for uh, like workplace analytics features. So, you know, since people are not in the office, um, it's hard to know, like, you know, who's doing well, who's struggling. Um, who's working uh, not enough, but even probably more likely, who's working too much? Um, and again, that data can be really hard to get your hands on. Um, so we've been uh, adding features that probably belong more in the workplace analytics sphere of um, how much are people working? What's their quality of life? Um, you know, how can we uh, keep tabs on them so that we can check in with them and say, you know, geez, I, I saw you work 60 hours last week. Um, you know, we had a big deadline to hit, but, um, you know, we can actually see who it impacted and how it impacted them. So all of these kinds of features that this data powers are kind of coming together in, you know, yes, still with one foot in the whole automation RPA world, but, but, but another foot squarely in the um, help the team be better, um, help the team survive under the remote work circumstances and, and, um, and, and you know, maximize the human potential of the team. Yeah. So I've got a I've got a friend that <clears throat> that's in that space uh, with an app called Time Doctor, and they record everything going on on the desktop, and they really drive it towards timesheets and productivity reporting. Yeah. They don't get into process mapping like this. Are, are you are you going to step into the uh, are you are you going to step into the timesheets and uh, you know that that side? Of, I don't yeah. I don't see it on your website, but but are 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 timesheets and productivity you know, it, reports part of this eventually? Um, you know, we'll we'll go with we'll go in the direction our customers um, you know want us to go. Um, of course, we have to stick to our guns too. Um, it's always a always a challenge for a young startup where you know a big customer might come along and say, you know, geez, we really want you to do this, and the startup is kind of like, well, you know, you you want us to do that, but everyone else wants us to do this other thing here, so. It's always a challenge to to stick to one's guns, but I think with with enough, the, with the way the work is changing, and the whole kind of future of work thing um, that we're figuring out as a society, 
um, and, and within corporate cultures, I think there's likely to be new things that will end up building that, you know, frankly, we wouldn't have thought of a couple of years ago um, because, you know, the needs and requirements are changing. Yeah, Jay, just curious, uh, kind of wrapping up our conversation, like um, who should be reaching out to you and when? And, and I'm thinking specifically, um, you know, in a past life, uh, our company was uh, setting up an automation center of excellence and, you know, talking to a lot of these RPA vendors and whatnot. But it feels like, man, if I had known Zeitworks was around, like you guys would have been a first stop, I guess, um, on that kind of automated, uh, uh, center of excellence journey, just to kind of get a lay of the landscape, right. And help inform a lot of the decisions. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, most companies, I think probably have processes that, um, would be good to know more about, um, and team member, uh, teams and execution that would be good to be know more about before, before you RPA, um, before you automate. Um, and so certainly encourage people um, to talk with us. Um, you know, I mentioned consultants earlier and, you know, consultants obviously play a huge role um, in not only in business processes um, and, and business, processes, uh, business processes analysis and modeling, but also automation. And so, you know, we see that as a, a big place for us too, you know, to work with consultants who are on the ground um, you know, talking with customers, understanding their businesses and the nuances of their businesses and processes and using Zeitworks to give them that that critical near real time data uh, that they need to move quickly and, and make the right decisions. You know, Rob, uh, th thank you, Jay. And Rob, you had another question I thought was really interesting um, around incremental innovation. Yeah, just uh, to ties a little bit to what I mentioned, you know, before about um people having a hard time to, to think about processes independent of systems. And so I, I'm just thinking that, um, you know, the, the, so Jay, you know, we've talked about a little bit about the worker conversation before uh, an analogy I would use is wearables, mm -hmm. right? So I've seen wearables companies where they use wearables in the workplace and there's definitely this concern about a big brother. Or are you watching me? Right. But I've also seen this, Hey, we're using this to make a safer workplace. And if we noticed that there was a unexpected slip or whatever, we may come ask you about that as a safety manager. And maybe you just stumbled, but maybe, you know, there's a slick spot on the floor, or, you know, we need some, protective matting there or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I think it's, you know, kind of what you alluded to earlier. So yeah, just kind of, um, can you help companies go beyond kind of, Hey, we've got a five-step process and we want to make it a four or three step and, and maybe go beyond that incrementalism to really totally rethink their processes of what they could be. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is a place where, um, you know, working with, um, other, other, uh, folks in the ecosystem, like a, like a business process analyst or a business process modeler, you know, who would be able to take our data and really start to think creatively, um, you know, based upon what they see, what, what should those processes be? Um, so, so I think that that's a big thing. You know, we, we also recognize that, um, you know, we need to one place where we need to continue to move uh, forward with our product and innovate is helping organizations quantify the improvements that are being made. Um, it's one thing to show somebody a bunch of data and analytics and they're like, oh, that's great. I didn't know that. Um, you know, it's good to know these things or I'm going to make a few changes or a few here or a few changes there. Um, you know, but ultimately that stuff will start to wear thin if there aren't more mechanical things around. Um, you know, to help the organization's tools, 
you know, to to set goals and to make improvements. Um, and so to that to that end, we're launching a goals feature um, later this month, where based upon a number of the analytics that we provide, uh, uh, individuals or or managers, you know, can set goals. Um, we spent an average of 15 minutes in this process. Um, you know, let's see if we can get that down to 10 minutes, set the goal, have it be uh, set for the whole team or some particular team members, and then track that progress longitudinally. Um, so a month from now, I know like, well, we we've, haven't we've, improved here or, you know, three months from now, we have improved here uh, due to these changes. So we, we recognize that we can't just give out, give away data um, and analytics. We have to give, uh, also develop tools, you know, that, that um, help all those little incremental changes that will probably happen across the people and the processes and the applications and, and show that they add up and that the sum is greater than the parts. That's awesome. That's a good discussion. So uh, I'll, I'll finish out with this. What's, What's long-term? Because mm -hmm. you've just described everything that you're already doing, right? Um, so what's the what, – what's, what's on yeah, the horizon? Yeah, you know, a lot, lot of things about? on the horizon. Um, you know, one of the things that, interestingly enough, um, I think that is probably on the horizon for us is that, um, in some sense, all roads do lead back to automation. And so, um, you know, we see some processes where – there are parts to it where you need a human. They're looking at a Word doc. Um, they're interpreting some unstructured text as an important step in that process and, and using their, their heads to figure out, okay, what do I do next? Oftentimes there's other parts of the same process that are highly repetitive. For example, copying and pasting values from you know, a web screen into an Excel spreadsheet. Um, of course, Excel spreadsheets are ubiquitous. Um, they're, the, they're the glue that holds together the pieces oftentimes between all these different processes. Um, and so um, we, we recognize that um, the idea of, I'll call them micro automations, um, pieces of the automation of the process that can be automated um, you know, for an information worker and pieces of the process that just need to be done by the, by the worker. So the analogy I use a lot for this is uh, autonomous driving. Um, you know, uh, I think we maybe were led to believe that autonomous driving would be, you know, ubiquitous and powerful by now. I can tell you as a Tesla <laughs> owner, it's not. Um, it works great on the highway, um, uh, but when you get into the city, man, you better have your hands on the wheel. And so I think the same thing is true here. You know, we're, yep. we're obsessed with thinking that AI is going to replace things and take over things. When in fact, I think a much better role for AI and machine learning is in an assistive or augmentative role, um, where it's helping you along and doing those, in this case, very repetitive parts. But in other parts, it's, you know, it's backing off and letting the human do what the human does well. Yeah, yeah. I was watching an interesting special on uh, Hulu about um, about uh, Tesla and self driving, and of course, it, it recapped all the times that Elon said that full self driving would be mm -hmm. fully automated and fully capable, and by what date? <laughs> and they said, yeah, and they missed that one, and they missed that one, and they missed that one, and then they had a major accident. I mean, because some some problems really are actually monumentous, and I find it interesting, by the way, on that on that one that. That he was able to figure out how mm -hmm. to land two rockets simultaneously, 
um, autonomously before yeah. he was able to figure out how to get a car yeah. to drive in yeah. the city. Like, in that, in that, in that amazing. I mean, oh yeah, just to Absolutely. show you how how complicated some problems really are. Yeah, and me, uh, you know, me being a machine really learning simple, geek, um, I I was kind of a sucker, and uh, you know, fell fell in for the the big sell. But I can tell you, it's there's there's some work to do there still. Yeah, yeah, my GM Super Cruise on my Cadillac. It's uh, it's nice. They they, they mm-hmm. definitely undersold it and it underdelivered, you know. <laughs> uh, so, it, <laughs> it was, but it but it does it does what, mm-hmm. what I it'll at least get me to Houston on the highway on its own, yeah. which is nice. It saves me a lot of hassle, yeah. so it, it's yeah. it's worth it. And they they undersold it, so I was okay, you know. I was like, okay, well, you undersold and underdelivered. So yeah. it's it's well, fine. That, that's a, that's a great anecdote. I, I mean, it's case. helping, right? <laughs> um, and so you're it's, it's it's moving in the right direction. Yeah, um, oh, it helps me. Out. Yeah, I I, I got yeah. it. I, I, and I think that just like Excel macros helped me. Just like you know, we we built a, our own internal process documentation system. It doesn't automatically document the process control. I gotta tell you, I I have like three processes I want to mm-hmm. fetch Zeitworks on inside my own company <laughs> right now because I've got. 270 employees yeah, yeah. some of whom awesome. do a lot you know manual processing for our clients and i'm like yeah there's there's something to do that because we have our own process ma- management system and so you know it, it's it's uh there's a difference between process documentation process management and actually self-documenting product and that mm-hmm. that's that's actually probably what excites me the most is um i i would even i would consider this and i consider rpa a bridge technology i don't I don't consider it an mm-hmm. in-state. I, I can. I, I, th- I think APIs are in-state, um, yeah. whereas I think RPA is a bridge to API. And um, I, you know, e- e- even th- but th- this is both a bridge yeah. and in-state Absolutely. because you'll always have people doing things, right? So, so you, you're you're trying to bridge them through to an automated future. But as soon as you're done, you know, documenting this, you know, this really mm. goes well with my favorite yeah. book on Lean: Two Second Lean. Um, he, he says his primary uh, suggestion in implementing lean is to uh, take a video of your process sure, before absolutely. and after so you can yep. show people how yeah. much improvement there was. Yeah. Do y'all actually log video so you can actually see a video of how someone did it before and then show a video of how they do it after? You know, we, we do grab screenshots um, and yeah. we try to minimize how many screenshots we grab. Um it helps us with our machine learning uh, when we train our models to find processes being executed in the wild. Um, but there's also, again, utility for the for the end user. Um, and I think that's a great example of like, here's where we started. Um, and now, you know, we've analyzed, we've measured um, and and we've made changes and we we're iteratively improving. Um, you know, in a lean style fashion to get better and better. But you got to know where you came from in order to measure your progress. No, I, I'm uh, excited, Jay. I think you're you're right, and I would agree with you, James, about this being a RPA being a bridge technology, and and you know use the Excel macros example, right? And and I think about like low code, no code platforms today, right? Much more robust than kind of an Excel mm-hmm. macro. But hey, you know it's it's quick, it's convenient, it definitely works and has its place, right? And so I I think Jay, to your point, it's like hey, just this is a first step just to better understand your processes. You know, um, I even think about systems that you're looking to retire and you want to know, does anything still use a system? Well, you've got lots of legacy systems and insurance and, um, you know, that's always a question that we faced. It's like, Hey, does anyone use this? Can we, can we turn it off without any repercussions or not? And, um, particularly like you said, with a great resignation as folks walk out the door or not, those might've been your subject matter experts that, that had that Intel and could have told you, 
now they don't, you know, aren't at your company anymore. So how, how do you know? Right. And so before you just kind of mm-hmm. hope and pray, you turn it off and, and then, you know, see if anything breaks, right. This would be a great way to probably um, test that out as well. So uh, I'll close out with this. You've raised uh, a few million bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the more recent announcements was on my birthday last year, July 7th, 2021, you raised uh, $2 million um before that uh, and that's when you actually came in from mvl to be the ceo mm-hmm. and uh the total raised at least publicly was six and a half million dollars because you had a four and a half million dollar round in 2020 another two million dollars in 2021 so you're at 6.5 now that's correct um you've got some uh you got some back- backers like zillow's uh ceo spencer raskoff you got blue nile wet paint founder ben mm-hmm. elowitz uh, so you've got you've got some folks in on the money here. Um, you were with a venture group, um, you know, with Madrona Venture Group and their Venture Labs MBL. Um, what, what's it What's it looking like? I mean, you know, the the funding landscape's changing a little bit right sure. now. Um, you know, do, venture groups are telling their investments to conserve cash and to knuckle down. Yep. What are your thoughts on this phase of yeah. venture capital? Well, you know, I'm kind of an old dog. I've lived through a lot of these ups and downs. Um, I still got yeah. scars from the dot com bust. All of us, all of us on this, all have scar yeah. tissue from '99. Oh, yeah. By the way, so um, yeah, that, that was that was, that one was quite spectacular. Um, but you know, through, throughout my startup career, I mean, the, you see these these waves; they come and go. Um, it's just part of the part of the game of coping and adapting. Um, and, um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see, um, I'm, I'm optimistic at this point still that some of the, most of the impact we're seeing is with later stage companies and the sort of like near unicorns, um, uh, you know, that are sort of looking to IPO and, and, you know, they're certainly being hurt right now. Um, but, you know, talk to me in a few weeks and, and there could be certainly, um, you know, some of this stuff falling downstream to, to the little guys like me. Um, so, you know, um, uh, definitely want to stay optimistic, but, you know, we'll do what we have to do to survive and, and um, have a lot of experience doing that. So um, it's just part of the journey. It's part of the game. It is. It is. It's, uh, oh, all things, including the ocean, mm-hmm. ebb and yep. flow. And so it's uh, you just got to learn how to how to how to float on top, <laughs> no matter no matter whether it's an ebb or a flow. It's uh, it's it's the way the way it goes. Totally. Uh, this is a, a a great conversation. I I enjoyed the chat. Um, I hope our listeners out there understand the differences between um, you know process mapping and process intelligence and RPA and RPAs. You know they're they're they're, they're these are different spaces. This this is a really weird but interesting hybrid between like a a timekeeping productivity app and a process automation app and you know it's 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 uh it's you're sitting in the middle in a space that i didn't even know existed which is i kind of feel like i'm spelunking today and i just found a new cavern it's uh it's exciting no very exciting And, and i think it's early days um you know there's a there's we know that a lot of companies are are really just embarking still on digital their digital transformation initiatives. Um, I've had experience, you know, guys with a lot of legacy, uh, you know, technologies in different industries like travel, for example. Um, certainly heard a lot about um, those legacy systems in insurance um, and financial services and so forth. So, 
you know, even though I tend to be more on the kind of cutting edge of like, you know, doing new things and creating new spaces, um, I'm always very cognizant from my experience that there's a lot of bedrock out there, um, you know, that still needs to be upended and, um, and it takes time. Um, and it, it can be inc incremental as well. And, and, um, and so again, that's just really kind of part of the journey of, of doing these kinds of things. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thank you for the discussion. Yeah. And I know Rob, you got a couple of news stories. What you got? What do you got this week? Yeah, I just uh, I've got three items that I thought were interesting that caught my eye. The first is uh, an old friend of mine, Marty Ellingsworth, wrote from Carrier Management uh, title called an article called "The Insurance Data War." How, excuse me, the insurance data war, how old and new school can live in harmony. And um, he actually points out that um, there's a ton of actuaries out there that are still using Excel for their their you know, rating engines and things like that. And uh, he's like, you know, it's it's the tool that's commonly used to communicate with executive management and stuff like that. So trying to bridge that gap between kind of a telematics world and IoT world, et cetera, and, and uh, you know, squaring the circle on that one. So I thought it was thought-provoking and wanted to, to share that. The second one, we talked about Tesla. So, uh, Jay, you said you're a Tesla owner. I don't know uh, if Tesla mm -hmm. insurance is available yet in uh, Washington State, but uh, Elon Musk this week uh, made some headlines that were not related to Twitter. Uh, he spoke to the attendees of the All In Summit in Miami, uh, where he talked about uh, the car insurance industry is incredibly inefficient. Uh, and he said, you've got so many middle entities from the insurance agents all the way to the final reinsurer. There's like a half dozen companies each taking a cut. Um, and they said that uh, Tesla charges premiums based on real-time driving using, uh, they calculate a monthly safety score. Uh, and there are five factors that... Uh, uh, going to the score uh, forward collision warnings per thousand miles, hard braking, aggressive turning, unsafe following and forced autopilot disengagement. And these are very different from the traditional and determinants like credit score and age. Um, it sounds like when you sign up, you get a safety score of 90 to start and then it can obviously go higher or lower and your premium is uh, adjusted accordingly. So Jay, I don't know. Do you have Tesla insurance? Does yeah. that sound attractive to you? Uh, it, well, it could be attractive, and I certainly believe Alon, um, you know, uh, breaking down the industry and the inefficiencies. I got to tell a really quick story about the Tesla score, though. So, you know, I was a little bit bent out of shape that the self-driving stuff didn't work as expected, and so I went into a dealership and was complaining. And he said, well, you know, there is a beta coming out that we're giving to special customers, um, you know, who have a high score. Um, what's your score? And I was like, I didn't know I had a score. And he said, do you have the Tesla app installed? I said, yeah. I handed him my phone. Uh, he brought up the Tesla app and showed me I had a score of 57. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you, know, <laughs> I, you know, I almost bur I burst out laughing when he showed it to me. Um, my wife would have gotten Might a lot of pleasure good. out of seeing that score because she always says I'm I'm uh, Mario Andretti, um, you know, when it, when it comes to driving. But, you know, again, here's data. Um, and I may not have completely agreed with, you know, maybe how the scoring was done, but, um, you know, I understood and thanked the gentleman and left. <laughs> well, what's interesting is, uh, Tesla said in Texas, um, they're actually the second largest insurer of Tesla motor of Tesla autos now already. Um, and so mm -hmm. obviously kind of has an embedded insurance uh, play to it. So it's, it's quite fascinating to, to follow you yeah. on. And then. Well, it's like embedded and it's not as they, they just need to make it parametric and then they'd have like the 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 uh, the bifecta there it, it, right now. I think I think it's pretty traditional. It it's is. just 
It's embedded, but it's traditional insurance. I don't think they're. I don't think they're selling by the mile, are they? I don't believe so. No, it's it's uh, the standard standard yeah. uh, time based coverage. So yeah, standard. And yeah, then gotcha. lastly, uh, I'm a golf fan, and I don't know Jay mm-hmm. if, if if you're a golfer, James. But anyway, I spent this weekend yeah. watching the PGA Championship in Tulsa, uh, which is very exciting, and was kind of you know catching some of the summaries on Golf Digest and stumbled across this. It was interesting during the telecast; they actually advertised their jobs website for the PGA. I was like, I didn't know that they are like that hard up for jobs. And so anyway, mm-hmm. this great article from golf digest called the club pro crisis. And so we've been hearing about the great resignation. Well, it's also in golf. And many people think that uh, being the club pro would be a dream job, right? You get to work on a golf yeah. course and be outside, but actually you have to deal with just as many emails and meetings as <laughs> the typical office worker. Many of these guys work up to 80 hours a week. They may not get vacation time for, for, for much of the year. You know, we may think of them as being out there giving instruction all day, every day, but that's actually, a, a small part of their job and and people are leaving the industry in droves and so um mm. very similar to others and, and the article was saying that hey a lot of golf clubs they need to rethink the position they need to actually staff up they need to cut back time they need to give you know more defined responsibilities with some assistance and others uh, maybe separating out like the the huh. pro golf shop right and, and some of the items that they sell and the inventories from the teaching and, and lessons aspect or whatever so anyway uh the great resignation has come to golf pros as well a very interesting article yeah no <laughs> <laughs> so so I, yeah, I, I, I enjoy playing and, uh, yeah, I play I too. Jay, but I, 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 yeah. So, uh, that does not make me happy to hear. I, I will pass the news on to my 19 year old son though, who's uh, trying to get a job for this summer and he's a big golfer. He's super into it. So I'll be sure to tell him that tonight. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for that, Rob. Appreciate it. And, um, you know, no, thank you for that last news article. I don't want to hear about my pro leaving. But uh, it's been a good show. Uh, Jay Bartow, really enjoyed yeah, you talking too, guys. to you. Really of course, appreciate you can, it. Uh, yeah, you can go to their website. That would be zeitworks.com, I believe. Yeah. And uh, you can go to Z-E-I-T-W-O-R-K-S, zeitworks.com. Thanks, Jay, and thanks, Rob, uh, for being on the show. Thanks, gentlemen. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Take care. This has been the InsureTech Geek podcast uh, powered by JB Knowledge. That's jbknowledge.com. It's all about transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Dalton-Alro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.